everybody. How's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name is Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? I'm doing pretty good. I'm actually pretty excited. See, we here at Tighten Up the Defense get a lot of questions from listeners. You know, like, which is your favorite Teen Titan? Who would win in a fight between the Defenders and the Teen Titans? Have you no shame? How dare you? Are you really a human man from Earth? And I always try to answer those questions to the best of my ability. But I think the most frequently asked question that we get is one that I've never quite been sure how to answer until now. And that question is, of course, what is the ideal occupation for someone with the nickname Curly? Well, good news, listeners. I hired a firm to do a survey of a thousand people with the nickname Curly to find out what their dream job is. And I just got the results back. So I thought I'd share them with you. You ready? All right. The top answer was, obviously, basketball dribbling specialist for the Harlem Globetrotters in the 70s and 80s. I mean, I think we can all see why a Curly would want that job. The number two answer, also pretty predictable, uh, popular stooge. What was a little bit surprising for me was that the number three answer was less popular stooge. I mean, if popular stooge is an option, I don't really see why you would want to be a less popular version of that. But that's Curly's for you. The number four answer is podiatrist. Okay. At number five, we have cowboy in a Rodgers and Hammerstein musical. That seems like a pretty good job. Then lawyer. At number seven, we have gruff but lovable employee of a dude ranch who is also a legendary gold haver, which is a little specific, but yeah, seems like a good job. Then at number eight, we have precocious titular character in a 1991 Jim Belushi comedy vehicle. Seriously, Curlies? In this economy? And then flipping all the way down to the bottom of the list, we have abusive Dust Bowl era farmhand with a very specific skincare regimen for his, quote, wife touching hand. Okay, I can see why Curly's don't want that job, but it got negative votes. I don't even know how it ended up on the survey. And there you have it the definitive answer for the top jobs for people who are nicknamed Curly. So you can all stop writing me and asking me that now. This is supposed to be a comic book podcast. Now, without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Today's synopsis rhyme is submitted by Eric Engelhard. Eric writes, In spring trees bloom like the desert willow chylopsis, Hub sees a shadow and flees to write this synopsis. Thanks, Eric. Although, for the record, I do not flee when I see my own shadow. It's just that in general I would prefer not to be backlit. It's unflattering. New Teen Titans, Volume 2, Number 36, October 1987. Beauty and the Wildebeest. Written by Marv Wolfman, drawn by Eduardo Barreto, inked by Romeo Tangal, lettered by Albert de Guzman, colored by Adrienne Roy, and edited by Marv Wolfman and Barbara Randall. 
Teen Titan Roll Call, Raven, Starfire, Wonder Girl, Beast Boy, Cyborg, Nightwing, Jericho. Previously in the New Teen Titans. Some guy named Arthur got imbued with the power to make businessmen have really vivid dreams about hot tub orgies. Then his wife Evelyn yelled at him so much that he flipped out and attacked the Teen Titans with crystals. Our heroes rescued Arthur by beating him up, and Evelyn said she was sorry for nagging. It was some weird confusing nonsense with a side of some sexist bullshit. But it was also a one-off story featuring characters we will never see again. Hooray! In other, more relevant Titans news, ever since triumphing over her extra-dimensional bad dad Trigon and evicting him from her bird-shaped soul tummy, Raven has no longer had to suppress all of her emotions all the time. This may have cost the Azerathian empath her status as an honorary New Englander, but it also left her free to move out of her secluded sanctuary in the Titans Tower and rent an affordable apartment in the bustling theater district of Manhattan. While Raven celebrated her newfound independence, Nightwing, a.k.a. Dick Grayson, finally crawled out of his admittedly well-toned ass long enough to stop moping and declare his love for his longtime space girlfriend, Starfire. The Tamaranian princess was overjoyed at their reconciliation, but when she proposed that they move in together, Dick got cold feet at the prospect of cohabitation. God, Zooks! What is Dick's problem? Does the fact that Arthur and Evelyn's story is in our rearview mirrors mean we won't have to deal with any sexist bullshit in this issue? And just how affordable is Raven's Manhattan apartment? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so... short answer? He's a circus orphan with a emotionally distant withholding father figure. This comic was published in 1987 in a place called America, so I'm gonna go ahead and say probably not. And $450 a month, including utilities. I know we talked about this last issue, but come on, those are some little house on the prairie prices. I mean, does the place come furnished with its own butter churn, or will she have to rent one? The Titans are chasing a flappy-winged dude in a yellow jumpsuit around the skies of New York. The flappy man in question is named Sunburst. Oh, Sunburst the Japanese hero who sometimes showed up in Superboy comics? No. Sunburst the Aquaman villain? No, not him either. Sunburst the bad guy from the 30th century who mixed it up with the Legion of Superheroes? No. The Swedish guy from Stormwatch? Nope, not him either. This Sunburst is a one-off baddie who has a fancy flying suit that fires solar energy blasts. He seems like a real ding-dong, but for some reason he's giving the Titans a lot more trouble than you'd expect. The not-so-originally-named No-Goodnik tosses Beast Boy through a billboard that has a picture of a baby on it in a way that leaves Gar's head sticking through so that it looks like he has a baby body. Hooray! Eventually, Starfire zaps the guy out of the sky with her magic space fire. At first, the spicy space princess is worried that she might have used a little bit too much juice and that the flappy man might be dead. But good news, he isn't. From his window office in a nearby skyscraper, a mysterious CEO whose face we never see watches the fight. He thinks to himself, Hmm, looks like Starfire is worried she might accidentally kill someone in a fight. I'd better file that information away for later use. Also, I'm evil. Yeah, I kind of got that from the CEO part. 
A hip-looking blonde scientist named Jonathan interrupts the tycoon's musings and is like, Hey, Mr. Evil CEO, you remember those nifty exoskeleton things I invented for you? Well, can I get paid for those? The evil CEO is like, Well, here's the thing. I'd rather not, but maybe I will later. Jonathan is like, That's what you said last time. I think if it's all the same, I'll just sue you to make sure I get my money. How do you like that? Bye. The evil CEO doesn't seem to like that at all. To distract himself, he flips on the Titans' post-battle press conference. As Donna is explaining how superhero insurance works, he has a bit of a brainstorm and rushes down to his research and development department to have a chat with a different non-Jonathan scientist. The CEO is like, Hey, non-Jonathan scientist, any luck inventing me those robots I asked you about? The non-Jonathan scientist is like, Oh, hi, evil CEO. No, I'm sorry, but there's no such thing as robots. Can't be done. I'm sorry, what? In the DCU. No such thing as robots. Wow. You know, on a certain level, you gotta kind of respect this guy's dedication to not wanting to do his job. It'd be like if I was bartending and someone ordered a drink, and I was like, Oh, I'd love to help you, but glasses haven't been invented yet. Sorry about that. It's actually a pretty good thing I didn't think of that while I was a bartender, because I totally would have tried that out. The scientist goes on to say that while actual robots are a no-can-do, he has been working on rigging some automatons up to a guy in a motion capture suit and making the automaton mimic the guy's movements. Kind of like in that Hugh Jackman movie, Real Steel, a film that I definitely didn't cry while watching on an airplane. The evil CEO finds this Real Steel technology intriguing and begins filling the robot-agnostic scientists in on an evil scheme that just occurred to him. While the anonymous industrialist and his shiftless underlings are fine-tuning their strategy, the Titans are hanging out in their T-shaped skyscraper's pool room. Dick, Donna, and Victor are working out. Jericho is painting. Starfire is taking a swim, Raven is meditating, and Beast Boy is, of course, being a gross creep. When he finishes his workout, Dick heads to the shower. On his way, he and Raven have a little chat. Raven's acting a little weird and lingers outside the door while Dick showers. Starfire surprises Dick in the shower and asks if he wants some company. The awkward aerialist is like, No, I think your presence in here would just hinder the showering process. Thanks, though. When she hears this, Raven, who is outside the room, apparently trying to earn her Teen Titans merit badge for eavesdropping, smiles to herself. Huh. When he's done showering, Dick apologizes to Starfire for being rude and says that he loves her. Then they start making out and presumably bone. This makes Raven frown. Double, huh? Later that night, a mysterious figure wearing an armored cow suit robs a jewelry store. The captions quote the beginning of the Lewis Carroll poem The Jabberwocky, but substitute the word wildebeest for jabberwock. So between that, the cow suit, and the title of this issue, I'm going to guess that this dude is named the wildebeest. While the wildebeest is busy burgling, our titular, recently teenage team is out to dinner together. Well, sort of together. Cyborg and Beast Boy are sitting a distance away at a different table, so as not to draw attention to the rest of the team. You know, unlike Coriander, the seven-foot-tall, bright orange woman who can just put on a pair of sunglasses as a disguise. For some reason, 
Raven decides to join Victor and Gar at the kids' table this evening, so she gets to hear Beast Boy whine about the fact that apparently it isn't easy being green. Then some teenage girls show up looking for autographs, and the Emerald Anamorph manages to cheer himself up by putting on a brave face and acting like a gross creep. Raven and Cyborg have a nice chuckle about what a dipshit their little green buddy is. The evening's interrupted when Cyborg receives word on his internal CB radio that there's a crime going down nearby. He runs over to the table where Dick Jericho and Starfire are sitting and tells them it's time to go. Because that wouldn't compromise anyone's secret identity. A few minutes later, the gang convenes on a rooftop around which several police cars are gathered. They aren't there very long before they're attacked by that guy in the armored cow suit from a few pages ago. The cow guy introduces himself as Wildebeest. Told ya. Jericho tries to use his creepy power to jump into the Wildebeest's body, but nothing doing. The conspicuously costumed creep has photo sensors which shield his eyes and prevent Joey from hermit-crabbing his way in. Wildebeest engages with the rest of the gang, all the while internally monologuing that everything is proceeding according to his plan. After a few minutes, the villain thinks to himself that he'd better lure the heroes to the duplicate that he has stashed nearby. The Machiavellian marauder ducks into an alleyway, only to apparently emerge a few seconds later. Starfire aims a starbolt at her animalistic adversary, and is surprised when Wildebeest ignites in a fiery explosion. The object of her attack turns out to be a mere mechanical man. Huh. Back at the anonymous CEO's secret lab, the non-Jonathan scientist tells a guy in a motion capture suit that he did a good job. Oh, I get it. He's gonna enter Wildebeest in a robot boxing tournament in order to win his son's love. Unless I'm thinking of Real Steel again. I am, aren't I? Back in the alleyway, the Titans are relieved to discover that the guy Coriander blew up wasn't a guy after all. They turn over the robot's wreckage and the stolen jewels to the police, and are about to head home when they receive word that someone fitting the description of Wildebeest is robbing the Metropolitan Museum of Art a few blocks away. Figuring that it's probably another robot, they hurry off to get their thwart on. When they arrive at the museum, Wildebeest has just been confronted by the police. The cops pull their guns on him, but Wildebeest grabs one of the cops' heads and throws him headfirst into a wall. On impact, the officer's head pops like a zit. Damn! I was not expecting that level of brutality. The unrepentant ungulate proceeds to snatch a painting off the wall, but the Titans swoop into action and attack him. During the initial round of attack, Donna's confused because Wildebeest is not fighting or reacting the way that they would expect a robot to. Indeed, Raven can sense emotion coming off the antlered asshole. Emotions which she attempts to manipulate. Wildebeest manages to resist the Azerathian's empathic onslaught long enough to lash out at the avian-themed adventure, badly injuring her. Raven teleports away to that weirdo dimension filled with stalagmites and stalactites that she likes to hang out in so that she can use her healing abilities on herself. Once she's gone, the rest of the team attacks with a renewed ferocity. Wildebeest ducks around a corner to where he has apparently stashed another decoy robot and makes another switcheroo on the unsuspecting heroes. A few seconds later, Nightwing tackles the figure he believes to be Wildebeest, hoping to seek vengeance for his teammates' injuries. After exchanging a few blows, the uncharacteristically silent would-be Wildebeest suddenly explodes. An unprepared dick is caught in the blast radius and is critically injured. Starfire swoops in to check on the unconscious acrobat. He's still breathing, but just barely. 
With tears in her pupilless eyes, the Tamaranian warrior rushes her boyfriend to the hospital at nearby Star Labs. From atop a stalagmite in her chill-out dimension, Raven is nursing her wounds when she senses that Dick has been injured. She strains her powers to their limit to kick her own recovery process into overdrive so that she can teleport herself to the hospital and minister to Nightwing's injuries. When she arrives at Dick's hospital room, she finds that the former boy Wonder is at death's door. Dr. Sarah Charles has just informed Starfire that they'll do their best, but frankly, it's not looking so good. Bummer. Also, I gotta say, bringing Dick to Cyborg's physical therapist for emergency surgery seems like kind of a weird choice. Raven ravens as hard as she can, and after a few minutes, announces to the rest of the team that while he won't regain consciousness for a little while, thanks to her efforts, by tomorrow, Nightwing will be just fine. Hooray! Just then, a radio announces that Wildebeest is striking again in another part of the city. Eager to take what revenge she can on the robots responsible for her boyfriend's condition, an enraged Starfire leads the Titans into battle. Before she goes, she asks Raven to watch over Dick and make sure that nothing happens to him. Raven agrees, but thinks to herself that the reason she is doing so is not because Coriander asked her to, but because she herself is now madly in love with Nightwing. Huh. I mean, technically what she thinks to herself is, I love Dick. But given the context, I'm fairly confident that she means Grayson and not just like in general. I'm like 90% sure about that. Starfire and the other Titans track down Wildebeest, who seems to have gone from robbing jewelry stores, to stealing art from museums, to now what appears to be purse snatching. Which is kind of refreshing. Nice to see a crook who takes the time to brush up on the crime fundamentals. A real renaissance reprobate. When the Titans show up, Wildebeest again thinks to himself that everything is going according to his sinister plan. He once again leads the heroes towards a location where he stashed a doppelganger of himself for a hero to destroy, but this final version of his twisted game takes a turn for the macabre. Once again, Starfire turns a corner and blasts a starbolt at what she has every reason to believe is a robot version of Wildebeest. Once again, her attack results in a disproportionately large explosion, but this time, the ensuing wreckage is no mere destroyed automaton. Housed within the circuitry of a now-defunct wildebeest costume is the corpse of a blonde guy, who I'm pretty sure is that Jonathan scientist that threatened to sue the anonymous evil CEO. Well, that sucks. The police who are already on the scene arrest the Titans for murder. A short time later, in a familiar-looking window office of a skyscraper, wildebeest puts his feet up on his desk, watches news footage of the Titans being taken to prison, and laughs his ass off at what a good, good schemer he is. To be continued. You know what? I'm starting to suspect that this wildebeest guy might be the evil CEO. And joining me once again via the magic of telephonic communication is my good-for-many-things brother, Corey, Corey, how's it going? Hey, it's going pretty good. I've got a strong cup of coffee, and I'm excited to uh, talk about this comic book. Nice. How are you? I'm doing okay, other than the fact that I've got a song stuck in my head. Mm. Do you remember that satanic ska band from the 90s, Mephiscopheles? 
I remember the name. It's their cover of the Bumblebee Tuna song. I think ever since I first heard that song in probably like 95, I have gotten it stuck in my head at least, I'm going to say once a year. Well, this is embarrassing, but I always thought that that was Fishbone that did that. Oh, no. This is Mephiscopheles Erasure, and I will not stand for it. Bum, 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 bubble tuna. Mm-hmm. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Like I said, it, it's been stuck in my head probably at least once a year since 1995. And that may not sound like a lot, but it's been once a year for a probably about six to eight month period. Oh. Yeah. Have you tried eating a sandwich made with bumblebee tuna? I feel like that might make it worse. Well, sometimes listening to the song can help get it out of your head, people say. I don't agree, but people say. So maybe (laughs) eating the sandwich that inspired the song will solve your problem. What if that particular combination of bumblebee tuna items cements the song into my head forever? Like in the 1988 Batman movie, when you use like the hairspray and the toothpaste together, then it becomes permanent and you die? Um, you're not going to die from eating a tuna sandwich, but I don't think that'll happen. Okay. I think you might think to yourself, hey, these guys are really on to something. This is delicious. You make a pretty mean tuna salad, my friend. Oh, thank you. The trick is use a little bit of white wine vinegar in there. It takes a little bit of the fishy edge off of it. Also, a fair amount of chili powder and uh, some Parmesan cheese. Hmm, good to know. Insert the little... Okay, I will. Thank you. Well, you said you were excited to talk about this comic book, so let's get into it. Corey, what did you think of this comic book? You know, I, I enjoyed this one. It's pretty straight ahead, but I like that they're playing around a little bit more with, oh, I don't know, Raven's creepy emotional awakening. What I didn't get was the cover was like, it finally happens. Starfire kills. Didn't she kill a shitload of people in the war on her home planet? Oh, yeah, but those don't count as people. Well, she's a people. Yeah, I know. That's a thing that the Titans has played around with a lot before. When they're on alien planets, not just in the war on her home planet, but in the previous war that the Omega Men were involved with in the Tamaranian system, both her and the Titans killed a buttload of aliens. But that, for some reason, doesn't count as people in this book. And, yeah, it's never been entirely comfortable. And... It also, I think, touches on the really fragile construct of when it's cool to be well-funded vigilantes with insurance and when you have to go to the police station for murder. (laughs) It is a very fine line between what is and is not legal for superheroes to do. I mean, I feel like worst case scenario, that should be manslaughter. I guess it's not as catchy a headline for the news reporters, but... Yeah, I was very conflicted about this comic book because there was a lot in it that I really liked. For one thing, it was great to have Eduardo Barreto and Romeo Tangal back on the art together. For the first time in what feels like a while, the characters looked right to me. It's a gorgeous and well-laid-out comic book. It's one of my favorite covers, the 
confusing headline notwithstanding. I feel like for the most part, it's pretty well written. There's an evil plan that the villains have that is, yes, complicated, but actually kind of makes sense. And it also seems like it remembers some of the seeds for storylines it planted before. And not only that, but remembers where they buried them, more or less, in terms of them really hinting at, hey, it's going to be a problem that Starfire sometimes gets carried away and a little bit too violent. But Mm -hmm. I really hated the Raven storyline. Gosh, I feel like it's one of those things where you're like, okay, here's this character that's just immensely powerful. Mm -hmm. So let's just make her like a confused, creepy woman. Yeah. You know what I mean? It had this, like, uh, I, I don't know what the term is for it, but you know what I mean? Like, they are diminishing her by making her creep on Dick. Absolutely. And if they wanted to establish that she has some underlying feelings for Dick, some romantic infatuation with him or something, they've had a hundred issues to do that, and they have never even hinted at anything in that direction. So it totally comes out of nowhere. If they really wanted to establish that that was what they were going to do, and I think they're trying to get it at it this way, it's that, oh, she has never been free to feel emotions before, and now that she can, she is overwhelmed by them all. They really did not establish that. They, they get at it a little bit towards the end, but it really just reads like, oh, we need something to do with these characters. Um, okay, now she's in love with Dick. And now she's jealous of Starfire. And it also, yeah, like you were saying, it just kind of doubles down on the really, really troubling idea that the two arguably most powerful members of the team are Starfire and Raven. And both of their fatal flaws are they're just too emotional, you know, because they're women. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel like it's a real missed opportunity because... That's like one of the elements that can make dramas like this really compelling when you've got these powerful people and then they have relationships and, you know, that causes trouble and you have the kind of soap opera stuff going on. But there's also the, you know, the action and all of that. And that can make for a pretty compelling story where you get really invested in the characters and, you know, the the complications that happen when you get a bunch of like powerful, attractive people (laughs) living together. Yeah, I mean, you're basically describing the X-Men. And Mm -hmm. I think that's kind of where they're trying to go with this. But it's weird because previously that actually had been something I've had a lot of issues with Marv Wolfman's writing in the past. But one thing that he's consistently done fairly well is establish what the relationship between these characters are. And you see each one of the Titans kind of has a different relationship with each other. And that's how their characters have interacted. Like... Cyborg definitely relates differently to Beast Boy than he does to Dick, and so on and so forth. And those relationships have been pretty well built for the most part. Yeah. And so when you throw this in just out of left field, it's even more jarring. And, like, really out of character for Raven, too. Like, I don't know, I feel like she does the same thing as Starfire historically, that kind of, you know, stranger in a strange land thing mm-hmm. she's like oh, i'm not from here so i'll be weird and <laughs> instead she's not doing that she's just like being a normal like creepy human listening to your friends talk about their relationship in the shower and smiling when 
you know, it's favorable to you and frowning when they say they love each other. And it's like, oh, that's yeah. disappointing. Well, and it's also extra creepy because you definitely get the impression that like Starfire and Dick are about to bone down and Raven is just listening outside the door to that. Well, I think I think that was probably something that Starfire was interested in from the outset when she's like Dick's taking a shower and she's like, hey, can I come in and scrub your back? And he's like, wait till I get out of the shower. I'm like, dude, <laughs> hey, that's just going to get water everywhere. And B, I, I yeah. think you're missing a... You know, your window may be closing here to get lucky. Yes, well, but then, you know, he brings it around at the end, I, I feel like. Yeah, it was awkward, though. It, oh, it was very awkward, but I feel like that is kind of what I'm talking about in terms of constructing Dick as a consistent character. I think if he hadn't been weird and awkward and missed on the cues there, it would have been like, well, who's this guy? <laughs> That's true. That's true. He's consistent. Yeah, whereas Raven, I don't know, I guess just living in the theater district broke her is what we're supposed to take away from this because she wasn't that way immediately after she was freed from the constraints of having to suppress all of her emotions. It's not until she moves into an apartment in the theater district and yeah, I guess just hanging out with actors and absorbing their emotions was just too much for her. Yeah, dude. I mean, if you are a Azerathian empath, don't get an apartment above Broadway. And that's the Hulk's rules. Oh, wait, oh, sorry. Yeah, wrong yes. wrong nope. episode. Yeah. So, gosh, as much as I liked a lot of what this story did, and I understand the impetus to try to introduce a new element, but it's not earned and it's corny and comes off as misogynist, and it really it really bothered me. Yeah, understandable. I appreciate the idea behind it and was pretty interested to see where it was going to go. But I, like I said earlier, I think it was kind of a missed opportunity for those reasons that you just mentioned. And why Dick, honestly? As we've seen him written, he's not like the coolest dude. <laughs> and Raven didn't seem to have like, she had a good relationship with Dick, I think, and there was like a, certainly a mutual respect between them, but it never, ever seemed to be headed in that direction. It would seem like if she has this sudden flood of emotions and no longer has to repress herself, we've seen them hinted at her almost going down that road with certainly Wally, and then later they hinted at it with Jericho as well. Either one of those would have made at least some sense instead of, yeah, what we get here. Yeah, I don't know what it is with uh, Dick and um, alien women, but... I guess uh, she's half alien, kind of. Well, she might be technically all terrestrial, because the Azerathians came from Earth, right? Yeah, I guess that's true. Trigons only, only half. Well, and Trigons made of their discarded, like, soul sausage material that they tossed out when they wanted to keep only the good bits for Azeroth. So technically, I think he's from Earth, too. Well, okay, that's we're splitting hair, so I mean, she's culturally not of Earth. That is fair. Okay. Maybe, maybe that's why it's working out for Dick. People are <laughs> like, I don't know how these guys are supposed to act. <laughs> he seems okay. <laughs> yeah, uh... He's totally one of those guys. And he probably like when he's I know he got pissed off when he was there, but I bet back when he's back on Earth, he totally just talks about how cool Tamaranian culture is. And he's probably got a tattoo that's in Tamaranian that doesn't mean what he thinks it means. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. 
Man, fuck that guy. (laughs) As I talked about, we get a complicated evil scheme that more or less makes sense. That was weird for me. Yeah, it was refreshing. I think also it's not really like a timestamp. We do have the timestamp category for the show, but this idea of public relations and image and perception being an increasingly more important thing as the 80s unfold is powerful here and like really called out because that's like a big part of the plotting. I feel like that's going on is this like anti PR campaign to uh, facilitate whatever crimes this guy wants to commit. Yeah, I mean, we saw that before a little bit with the Brother Blood storyline, but in this, it really is more putting the Titans in the setting of New York corporate culture in a way that I think is actually pretty interesting. I did think it was funny when they were having their first round of interviews when things were still going pretty good for them, and the reporter asks them a question, and Wonder Girl's response is, Oh, well, let me explain to you the way our insurance works. <laughs> it's like, wow, way to guarantee that everybody pretty much zones out for a minute. Yeah, no, no, that was that was clever of her. But I also took a note of that because I thought to myself, that has got to be like the least profitable. <laughs> I mean, how much would you have to charge in underwriting for superhero insurance? They destroy half of the city every time they go outside, it seems like. Absolutely. What I had written down as my full notes for that section are, A, what a great way to deflect the question, but also the fact that they cut away right then was just like, but wait, how does their insurance work? I want to hear that explanation because, yeah, why would anybody insure them? It seems impossible. It must be just like a PR move on the insurance company's part, I would assume, unless it's one of those where they just pretend to have insurance. So they're like, oh, yeah, deal with that with our insurance company. And then it's just like a shell corporation that nobody can get into touch with. Mm. Mr. Grayson, it says here on this form, your policy number is 69 with Beast Boys Totally Real Insurance Company. And then there's a little wink emoticon. (laughs) Ah. Dick Grayson strikes again. Man, I'm upset at him for all kinds of made-up shit that we're having him do. Why do you think they quoted the, or I guess paraphrased the Jabberwocky in this? I was thinking, I don't know, Wolfman had been reading it and thought it was cool? Yeah, I think that must be it. I mean, it does sound cool, the little snippet of it that they do where they just substitute the word wildebeest for jabberwock it made me wonder why they didn't just it was like well if you want to do that you could just call him the jabberwock i don't think it's copyrighted and frankly wildebeest it's a cool sounding name that sounds pretty vicious but a wildebeest is just a fucking skinny plains cow yeah like that's not an intimidating animal no they run away yeah generally (laughs) Do you think he just heard the name Wildebeest and was just like, oh, that sounds so tough. It's like a wild beast. I get it. And then he's like, saw what it looked like and was like, oh, no. (laughs) Well, too late. They do draw him with a water buffalo back in Maine. So 
Yeah, well, not only that, but it, there's the one close-up where you see one of his hands is set up to look like a hoof. Like, he's wearing a little hoof mitten. And I know he's supposed to be ferocious, but I was like, that is so goofy. And also, like, how are you picking up all that jewelry? You just have one opposable, like, it's you are wearing a mitten. I appreciate the attention to detail in the costuming and the really committing to the motif, but that is not a well-thought-out theme. It reminded me of that poor soul, I can't recall his name now, but in one of the very early Ultimate Fighting Championship competitions, there is this dude who wore one boxing glove. <laughs> what? Yeah. To protect his hand for, for punching really hard. And okay. And it didn't go well for him. Well... Those early UFC fights were weird. They were still just trying shit out. That really did seem to just be like, look, we watched Bloodsport. We don't fucking know. Oh, yeah. Maybe throw a sumo in there? How's he gonna do? Oof. I guess not great. Okay, okay. Yeah. It seemed like every other fight was between a guy who did capoeira and, like, a drunk uncle who had had six beers and had some hard opinions about which Chuck Norris movie was the best. Sport has changed quite a bit since then, but I, I was like, oh, man, it's like Boxing Glove Guy. See, we have very different frames of reference. My first thought was like, oh, just like Rom the Space Knight with his oh. weird space mitten. Well, he's consistent. He has two space mittens, right? That's true. Whereas I believe the Wildebeest does just have the one, at least, to his benefit. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the nun, I guess. Most of the time you see him, he looks like he's got two fists, but... Sometimes it looks like he's just got that mitten on one hand. Maybe it's like in his pocket. and <laughs> He just takes it out and puts it on when he needs to pick up jewelry or smash things. I don't know. Do you know how much less intimidating he would be if he was like the same character, the same character design, but he was just called the Gnu? It would be significantly less intimidating. See, Wildebeest does sound tougher than Gnu. Yeah, but they're the same animal. Do you say the G? You do, right, Gnu? I always did. I should maybe not take all of my science know-how from the show The Great Space Coaster, but there was a roving reporter on that show named Gary Gnu. That's true. So, I'm assuming it's Gnu. My entire knowledge of Gnu, besides the fact that I looked up and it turns out it's another name for Wildebeest, is Gary Gnu from The Great Space Coaster, and there was a ice cream parlor in my hometown growing up that had a sign on the special board that said GNU so that you would ask, um, what's GNU? And they'd say, not much. What's GNU with you? And I uh, did think it was funny, but I was also very angry at them for embarrassing me. That's not cool to like bait you into a, a joke that you don't want to be part of. Yeah, no, that's entrapment. Mm -hmm. That's one of the lowest forms of humor. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> right up there with sarcasm and swearing. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, I, th I think of GNU as a, what is it, like the co collection of software. Oh, I'm not familiar with that. Is it an acronym? I don't know. There's a picture of a GNU on the, the book about it, I remember seeing. Is it just software for creating GNUs or escaping packs of hyenas? Uh, gosh, I'm a little fuzzy on it. I think it's like... You could use it to as a like an operating system, it's like a flavor of Linux. I don't know. It's it's been a long time since I've messed with that. Mm, flavor of Linux was the worst reality dating show. 
<laughs> What's going to do with you? Uh, <laughs> you see what I did there? I did, and it's called entrapment, which I now know is the lowest form of humor. But the most sincere form of flattery? Or is that caricature? What were we talking about? Who knows? Ah. Oh, we were talking about uh, Wildebeest and how it's not actually an intimidating name, even though it kind of sounds cool. Oh, right. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, I can see why we should be intimidated by him, because he murders a cop in a pretty goddamn intense way in this issue. I don't know if it was intended to be as gory as and as visceral as it was until the colorist got her hands on it. But uh, that panel on, I think it's page 17, did that strike a chord with you? It made me wonder if we had seen such a graphic depiction of murder. And I, I couldn't think of an instance where we had, other than Brother Blood licking blood off everything which is pretty <laughs> gross like this was gnarly man the guy gets his head smashed into a brick wall and it just leaves a splat and a yeah. trail of blood down the wall to his lifeless corpse yeah i mean presumably he does not have a head anymore it's tough to tell from that angle but it it's a very intense moment that is very offhand in the way it's treated i don't think anybody even really mentions that it happens it's just like oh uh okay Maybe all of the villains have been doing this all of the time, and it's just never been brought up before, but damn. What's very strange to me is, as Wildebeest is murdering that police officer in that gruesome fashion, he's saying, I'm no common thief, and then his very next action is to remove a piece of artwork, a painting from the wall. And I was like, these two crimes don't seem to go together. Well, I, I mean, I think the idea is that, like, the whole raison d'etre for his crime spree is to goad Starfire into blowing up a robot exoskeleton that he's hidden a corpse in so that she'll go down for murder and he'll get, I th like, I think the art thief is just window dressing here. Oh, I know. I know. I'm just saying, like, for whatever reason, stealing a painting seems like less of a crime than stealing jewelry. I don't know why. I think it's just, like, with the painting... The insurance will cover it, that's why. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, presumably it would the jewels, too, but there's also... It's such a specific piece of art, like the painting, that it's like, you're not going to take that to a pawn shop, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, you have to have a specific art collector in mind who's going to buy that, or it's that you're taking it for yourself because you like pretty things, which kind of undercuts the vicious devil-may-care attitude towards the rest of his crimes. Or makes it even creepier. Yeah. Every time I look at this Van Gogh, I'm going to think of smashing that dude's head into the wall. Well, now, to be fair, I believe it is a Rembrandt. Oh, my bad. Speaking of robots... I guess we weren't really speaking of robots, were we? Well, maybe we can start. Robotic exoskeleton suits used to make crime happen? <laughs> right, which you have to use because uh, it's been established that in the DC universe at this point, robots are just science fiction. <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah, I read this sentence where the scientist is like, well, robots like you're talking about, those are the province of science fiction at this point. We just have remote control exoskeletons. 
I'm sorry, what? <laughs> yeah, I feel like we've seen more than a few. Many, many robots. So many robots. Uh, I, I mean, just off the top of my head, there's the Metal Men, there's the Red Tornado. Those are fully sentient robots. For less sentient robots, we got our old Honey Bucket that we were dealing with before. Can't leave out Honey Bucket. Yeah, there's a ton of robots. I mean, Superman alone had like 150 robots of himself. You know, I just lost a lot of respect for whoever the supervillain is because he just takes that bad scientist <laughs> at his at face value. He's like, oh, okay. No problem. That scientist has a pretty fucking sweet deal, it seems like. If his boss is just like, hey, I want this, is like, oh, sorry, we there's no such thing as that. That very common thing that crops up all the goddamn time. Nope. Uh, nobody can do that. I think I might try that next time I'm tasked with something at work I don't want to do. <laughs> like, you're going to have to email this guy. Well, <laughs> here's the thing. We don't have that technology. Like, I think my dad would say shit like that. Like, hey, how does log division work? Uh, nobody knows for sure. <laughs> I have definitely said nobody knows about a lot of things that people know about. Yeah. So, yeah, I can identify with this scientist to a, to a certain extent. I mean, you know, he, he is aiding and abetting in at least one murder. I definitely got the impression that the guy who is murdered is the guy from the beginning of the book who wants his money for the robot suits. Did you get that impression? I totally got that impression. Uh, Jonathan, his name was. Yeah. It took me a second to get there, though. Like, I was like, I'm pretty sure that's supposed to be the guy. It did seem like the sort of thing that they could have confirmed pretty easily in the news report at the end. Just be like, the body of 35-year-old inventor Jonathan What's-His-Face, you know? Because he doesn't look that distinctive. And he didn't really have a huge role in the book. It's just like, oh, blonde guy, dead blonde guy. I think they're probably supposed to be the same guy. I just, I think it would have been nice to have that explicitly stated at the end. It would have been very easy to do, if that is who he is. Yeah, it would have been tidier. I can't see it being anybody else. I mean, that's how you know the guy who, I don't think we, they don't explain who the villain is, right? Is they're leaving that for some later reveal? I guess. I mean, he's got a cigarette holder, so he's probably either the penguin or Mrs. Scarlet, or Hunter S. Thompson. Mm. I was like, man, did Mr. Jupiter break bad? <laughs> I thought the same thing, because they do this thing where you never see his face. He's always shrouded in shadows, like there's going to be a big reveal when we see who he is. And I did start thinking like, okay, so is it Mr. Jupiter? I don't think the new Teen Titans have ever dealt with Mr. Jupiter. And so if it is a reveal, I don't think any of their readers would necessarily recognize him. I guess it could be Morgan Edge, maybe, uh, who is Superman's boss, who's a wealthy industrialist. But I'm pretty sure it's just a guy we haven't seen before. And why, why shroud him in shadows like that? Yeah. And so I did, before I got distracted by that, I think my point was going to be it makes sense to me that it was the inventor of the suit because it was a way to reinforce the evilness of this guy. Mm -hmm. Because he's super rich, he can afford to pay for somebody to, you know, design a robotic exosuit for him. But instead, he would just rather murder him. Yeah, fuck that guy. I bet he doesn't tip. Oh, 
you know he doesn't tip. You know how you know he doesn't tip? Hmm. Because he says, I told you I'd take care of you later. Uh, and that is something that as a bartender and as a server, anytime anybody has said, like, I know I'm being kind of annoying right now with all these extra requests, but don't worry about it. I'll take care of you later. You're going to end up with a super shitty tip that they think is a perfectly good tip. Mm-hmm. You're going to be like fucking 8% and they're going to be like, going to want a fucking hug and a thank you for it. Boo. Yeah. Yeah. No, I hate this guy. We have an accord. I mean, don't get me wrong. I was already leaning against him with the whole murder thing. But now that I know he's a shitty tipper, especially fuck this guy. Yeah, he's evil. He is. And also, you see, I think part of the way he's trying to throw suspicion off of himself is that he is, I think, attempting to try some kind of like different accent or like maybe speak in some kind of vernacular when he's in the wildebeest costume. Because he talks a little bit like you see, like, cyborg talking, where the gerunds end in apostrophes instead of Gs, you know? You're a rich guy pretending that you're not a rich guy when you do crimes. You're, like, doing an impression of what you think a criminal sounds like. I don't care for that. Yeah, it's not cool, but the way that it was written, I was reading him like William H. Macy's character in Fargo. <laughs> <laughs> Thinking you don't understand what's going on? You're all such idiots. No, that's not that's not Midwest. What was that? Nah, that was, I believe, Hans and Franz. Oh god, I'm so bad at accents. <laughs> or possibly the Terminator. You know, that famous Midwesterner Arnold Schwarzenegger. Now, I would actually like it a lot more if he was trying to throw off suspicion by adopting a Minnesota accent. <laughs> I did think it was kind of funny. We've seen this definitely come up before but the conceit that the comic book has that beast boy and cyborg can't hang out with the rest of the titans because they look too conspicuous but starfire apparently blends in yeah what i was curious about your opinion on that so like essentially they're relegated to the kids table when they go out for this fancy dinner Mm -hmm. um a What does it matter if they draw attention or not if they're sitting at the same table or a different table in the same restaurant? Yeah, it would seem like people would be able to piece that together, especially with Starfire looking as conspicuous as she does. I just, they don't want to hear Gar's shit. Yeah, I think that's probably pretty reasonable. Also, just getting back to like the accent that it seemed like Wildebeest was adopting. We see in this, Gar, maybe it's just when he's hanging out with Cyborg, talks the way that Cyborg generally talks. With all of the apostrophes and the mebbies and stuff, it made me, I don't know if we've broached this idea before, but is the reason that Cyborg talks like that, is he just fucking with Beast Boy? Is he like, yeah, no, this is how how me and all my cool friends talk. And then you see Beast Boy talking like that. And it's like, you sound fucking ridiculous, dude. And uh, it it makes it, I think, in my opinion, more (laughs) forgivable how badly Cyborg's dialogue is written generally if he is just doing that to fuck with Beast Boy. I like this. I like this idea. I do, too, because Beast Boy is a real piece of shit in this issue. Mm hmm. And yeah, when they're at that table and he's just like, man, 
I never get a fair shake. It sucks being me. And then like some ladies come up and want his autograph and he's like, now I'm happy and everything's great. Mm -hmm. Although he may be the only teenager left on the team. So I can see that kind of mercurial relationship to your emotions being part of it. There was a bit of dialogue that references that in the pool scene that I didn't quite understand. Did you, what was your read on like Gar's being a total fucking creep with Starfire as usual in the pool? Yes. And uh, when she gets out of the pool, one of the things he says is I'm only 16. Have mercy on me. Yeah. How did you read that? Is he like, that's an explanation for why he's being such a fucking creep or you should be sexy towards me because I'm full of hormones. I read that as he is looking at her butt as she gets out of the pool. And he's saying, oh, it's too much for me. Mm. And that's why saying, for God's sake, get back in the water. I'm only 16. Have mercy on me. And if not mercy, have your way with me. Oh, so, yeah, like your body's too sexy to be looked at. So, right. And that's something that you're doing wrong. Yeah, of course. Of course he would say that. Fucking car. Yeah, that is how I read that. It is weird that I don't know if it is that way in your copy, but in mine, he is golden instead of green in that panel as a dolphin. Yeah, maybe that's like when dolphins get erections, they change color. I don't know. Or maybe he just peed all over himself. Oh, either way, boo. Yeah, no, either way, that's that's poor pool etiquette. (laughs) Yeah. Speaking of poor etiquette in that panel, you also see that uh, Dick is not waiting his turn to use the parallel bars. Like, neither he nor Donna is going to get a good workout if if he's rushing like that. Oh, I thought they were, like, chasing each other around as part of their workout. Oh, that probably makes a little bit more sense. Yeah. His choice of, well, I guess we'll get to that in sartorially speaking, but is he wearing, like, Timberland boots and jeans for his workout? Yeah, I think he's uh, like uh, maybe just trying to play on hard mode. Mm. No, he's like very much has this like 80s action guy look, muscle shirt and jeans and work boots. Mm-hmm. We really need to revisit a few things from that page uh, once we get to the sartorially speaking, though. Yeah, you bet. Well, speaking of which, uh, are you ready to move into the minutia? Was there anything else you wanted to bring up before we head there? Just one little detail that I was really kind of tickled by. I love it when they throw stuff like this in because you don't know if it's from, you know, Wolfman or from the art team or where. But in, I guess it's probably Dick's room where the shower is. On the wall, there's, I, it, well, I, this is why I was questioning if it was Dick's room. So on the bookshelf, there's what I think we can assume is a collection of Raymond Chandler short stories. Which mm-hmm. I was like, okay, that makes sense. He would like the detective stuff. Yep. But on the wall, next to his Superman poster, there's a Frank Zappa poster. And a poster for Casablanca. Okay, yeah, I thought that's what that said. And I was like thinking to myself, okay, maybe he was just like at Spencer's Gifts at the mall. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> oh, these look cool. But he does not listen to Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention. He might. You don't see Dick singing along to Dynamo Hum or... I, I don't see it. Yeah, it is a weird choice. I really enjoyed that scene, and I felt like the backgrounds of that one panel did more character building for Dick than many issues of the comic book have done. Because it does make you think, like, what is going on with that guy? He apparently does have a more rich and interesting interior life than I had been led to believe. Mm -hmm. 
I also did think it was kind of funny that he just has a big Superman poster up. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, I get the infatuation with Bogey and Chandler. That is seemingly pretty much in keeping with his, like, detective stuff. The poster of Superman, I assume he just keeps up to annoy Batman when Batman comes to visit. <laughs> Like, Bruce Wayne comes in and is like, oh, what's with that poster? And Nightwing's just like, oh, I'm just a big fan. He's my favorite superhero. I wish he was my dad. <laughs> yeah. Well, are you ready to get into the minutia? I am now ready, yes. Okay. Rick, would you mind singing us in? We got minutia. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutia. Like Corey eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. So, Corey, you know, we were hinting at it before. Let's start off with sartorially speaking. Sure. What did you think of Donna's workout gear? The sexy Zardoz mime look, I'm calling it. Ah, I uh, was referring to her as Donna Fonda. Oh, I can see that, too. Yeah, she is wearing, it's kind of like the Zardoz deep suspended banana hammock over a black and white striped shirt and leotard with leg warmers. Yeah, no, it's it's very much of a, what I remember anyway as a Jane Fonda workout era outfit. I gotta say, I think she pulls it off pretty well. I think it's a pretty decent look on her. Mm-hmm. It looks so complicated. Like if you were getting your workout to like if you have to pee, you have so many layers. Yeah, I don't know why you would put that scooped out one-piece bathing suit on over the rest of the ensemble. Mm -hmm. It just seems like such a weird choice. But I think that was a thing people did. Yeah, that was the the style. Yeah. Uh, Cocaine's a hell of a drug. (laughs) What did you think of uh, Beast Boys going out to eat attire? Oh, man. I quite enjoyed it. It was like, he saw Scarface and thought it was cool, but just thought that the bright yellow... And black contrast was better than a, a black and white contrast on account of his green skin, maybe. Maybe. It is a solid look. I really like that outfit, actually. Yeah, the bright yellow blazer with the sleeves rolled up a little bit over a black button-down shirt with uh, kind of wide collars. It's a really tight look. Uh, I gotta say, sartorially, if in no other way, Beast Boy does a pretty good job there. Yeah, absolutely. And in that same scene, uh, when he's sitting at the kids' table with Raven, you know, joins him and Cyborg, she's got, I don't really know how you describe it, like a dress you'd maybe expect an anime character to wear, where it's got sleeves that go up to the shoulders, but then it's like a low-cut dress that would, like a bustier almost, with a collar attached by like a cord that goes down the middle. I'm not describing it very well, but... No, but it's like the collar isn't attached to anything and she's wearing a white skinny tie with it. Like, like a Chippendales type thing. Yeah, it is a weird look. It really is. I wonder if maybe she just untied the bow tie from her Chippendales collar and lets it hang down there. Yeah, I can't really figure out how it works. I don't think it's necessarily... A bad outfit, it's just one that I can't quite wrap my mind around. That does not mean it may not have been based on an actual outfit that was very popular in the late 80s. Mm-hmm. I genuinely enjoyed the way the ill-fated Jonathan dressed, his gleaming white suit with a black turtleneck. 
and then white framed sunglasses that went with it. Very consistent. Yep, I had that noted as well. And I really enjoyed Sunburst's armor. Mm. I think it's interesting that they went ahead and named him Sunburst, despite the fact that there are a few other characters in the DC Universe named Sunburst, and then just put a little caption that said, like, yeah, a lot of people use this name. Yeah, deal with it. I think it kind of makes sense, though, if he is just a minor villain. Maybe he doesn't know about that. Maybe it is just really emphasizing how disposable he is and how he's like the superhero equivalent of a jobber. I think that kind of made sense. I thought it was a weird touch, but I liked his outfit. It was kind of one note. It was all shiny and gold with big wings and a full body suit. But the way that Eduardo Barreto drew it, it actually looked pretty cool. Mm hmm. And I liked that one of the Titans described it as being a suit made of gold lame, uh-huh. which would be pretty hard to capture in the illustration, but I imagined it having millions of little sparkles. <laughs> mm-hmm. Very it. shiny. Mm-hmm. Any other fashion you want to talk about? I guess the only other bit is the girls that ask Gar to sign the autograph. Very 80s uh, popped collars and like jackets with little zippers on them. Yeah, the one with the big hoop earrings especially, I think, has a a nice look with the pink and black striped shirt with the red jacket with a popped collar over it. Yep, all the clothing has big shoulders. Mm Mm-hmm. The blonde lady in front of her has a purple jacket that looks kind of like the one that Eddie Murphy wore in Delirious. Mm. And I'm not entirely sure if this technically counts as fashion, but I really liked that Beast Boy assumed the form of an Archaeopteryx in the opening pages of the book. The bird-like dinosaur that I only remember from that one dinosaur's issue of zoo books. It's a good look. Well, let's move on to a category that I actually had some trouble with in this one. Battle of the Band Names! So... In last week's poll, Tattered Emotions narrowly defeated Scarlet Wings and Mighty Thews, which honestly, I gotta say, surprised me. Apparently, Mighty Thews is not not at the forefront of uh, popular culture. I suppose not. But it does mean that we are once again pitting a band name that we find in today's issue against Tattered Emotions, who, I gotta say, has been pretty plucky and has pulled out a few victories now. What band names did you find in this issue? Well, as always, my first choices turned out to be actual band names. Um, was one of them Seven Ways to Sunday? No, I just assumed that was one and <laughs> didn't even put it down. Yeah, it is. That was like, oh, that, that'd be like a good name for a Christian rock band. And yeah, I think it is. <laughs> no, the ones I came up with were the Jolly Green Giant. Um, mm. The Jolly Green Giants were a band from the Pacific Northwest. And the other one, which I was kind of surprised at, but then again, not really. It's like this metal band, I guess, that would be uh, Archaeopteryx. Ooh, yeah, I considered that one, too. But that that one, I think I kind of, for whatever reason, assumed. I think that might already be one. Mm-hmm, yeah. The ones that I ended up coming up with are a kind of a dour band called Shadow Below Me. Oh. Kind of like a gloomy art rock i think i would think there will be like new metal like with a u and they would open for avenged sevenfold or bands like that okay i think that might make a little bit more sense 
What band names did you find? Well, speaking of Jabberwocky, I had The Teeth That Rend. The Teeth That Rend is pretty good. Yeah, not a band name. Looked it up. Nice. And they're, they're definitely in that same vein, you know, some kind of really heavy, loud music. Yeah, but I mean, like, they definitely, I feel like, have an art school influence. Oh, oh, yeah. Yeah. I think that's pretty good. I had one, I'm not, maybe you can help me figure out what type of music they are, but The Province of Science? Mm, I like that as a name. I think maybe they are like, uh... They probably sound like the Helio sequence. Yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna say some kind of indie rock band. Mm. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if they're necessarily part of the Elephant Six Collective, but they know those guys. They've played shows with them. Sure. Yeah. And in fact, they may have played with one of my choices who are in a similar music style that are the uh, the unconscious supervillains. Ooh. The unconscious supervillains is nice. Thank you. Gosh. And you, you see them as being kind of like lo-fi indie rock? Yeah. Like maybe they opened for Built to Spill one time? Yeah, they wanted to tour with Pavement, but could just never really make it happen. Mm. Well, I don't know. What are you thinking? And so our, our choices are uh, Shadow Below Me, Province of Science, Unconscious Supervillains, and The Teeth That Rend. Mm-hmm. Of those, what are you thinking? Oh, man. I don't know. I think the science one is, is good. I'm, I'm okay with that. For me, it comes down to probably one of the two indie bands, either the Province of Science or the Unconscious Supervillains. You want to go with Province of Science just because it sounds a little less comic booky? Yeah, that's what I was thinking because ostensibly most of the people voting have some interest in comics. <laughs> and so that may give the Unconscious Supervillains an unfair advantage. Yeah, we want things to be fair in these contests. Absolutely. On the merits of the the band alone. Exactly. Okay, so let's go with Province of Science and see how they fare against tattered emotions. I like Province of Science, too, because it sounds like maybe they're Canadian because they're a province. I was just going to say, I bet they toured with Boards of Canada. Oh, probably. Corey, were you able to find a timestamp in this issue? Yeah, I had a couple. They were pretty loose, but one of them was uh, the aforementioned uh, Donna Fonda. That workout outfit was just screamed late 80s to me. It absolutely did. A lot of the fashion in this did. Yep. Other than that, on page six, the panel that's got all of those like TV monitors that mm-hmm. are inset, they have that CRT shape that's you know not quite square, but the edges are somewhat beveled. Ah. Uh. Don't see TVs like that anymore. That is true. Yeah, mine was not necessarily as specific a timestamp as I like to do, uh, but there really weren't that many current pop culture references in this. When Beast Boy makes reference to using Speed Stick, I was like, oh, was that new in the 80s? And no, that had come out in, I think, the early 60s. They had introduced Lady Speed Stick a couple of years ago when this came out, but I, I don't think that was what he was referring to. So I went with one that actually ties into another category. At a couple of times in this comic book, characters are called jerks when they are doing something foolish or not thought out, as opposed to something mean. And I feel like the word jerk has really changed since the 80s. Like, 
you remember the movie The Jerk? That mm. was about a character who was perfectly nice, but was foolish and out of touch. And I feel like that's what jerk used to mean. It just used to mean somebody who was incompetent or stupid. And now it means somebody who is like mean and kind of a bully. Yeah, that's true. And it has evolved. It's funny. I, I feel like you get that with the word asshole, too. Mm. Like in Spaceballs, watching it always kind of confused <laughs> me because when he's like, I'm surrounded by assholes. Well, they're not being assholes. They're, they're mm-hmm. just dumb and bad at their jobs. Like, why are you calling them assholes? And I think dumb and bad at your job was what asshole used to mean more. But yeah, so I, I had the evolving meaning of the word jerk being my timestamp. Wow. That's interesting. Which leads us into our next category. Corey, let's take this party to the Bozone. What instance of one character calling another character a bozo do you want to talk about? Man, Wildebeest was laying it on thick trying to get the Titans mad at him. Mm-hmm. Puny children not worth my time. <laughs> That's pretty good. Pretty harsh. All such idiots. Yep. That was another good one. Mm -hmm. I believe he called them wimps as well. Mm -hmm. Yep. He, on the other hand, receives thrown back at him uh, being called ugly by Cyborg, who wants to smash his ugly face in. (laughs) Well, what he is presuming is an ugly face, because at that point, he's just like, I'm pretty sure there's a human in there, which means that I want to smash his ugly face. It's like, well, you're making a couple of different suppositions there. Yep. I like Dick using a gruesome as an insult. Mm-hmm. Maybe we've heard him do that before, which is a really weird choice, but I don't know. I think it's pretty good. Yeah. To get back to what I was talking about in the last category, when Sunburst attacks the Titans, he says, this is a big city. Nobody should have known I was here. And Beast Boy's response is, jerk, the next time you want to go incognito, don't wear gold lame. And then a couple panels later, he says, huh. That guy may be a jerk, but his solar powers pack a wallop. And that's just what I'm talking about with, I think, the evolving meaning of the word jerk. Mm. It, he's not being a jerk, as we would understand the word, by wearing gold lame when trying to be incognito. That's not a mean thing to do. It's just a not thought out and foolish thing to do. That is true. But I did like that insult. Tough but fair. Corey, who did you have as your president of the drama club in this issue? Which character acted, or rather overacted, in the most dramatic fashion? Uh, I don't feel good about this because of, like we talked about at the outset, the way that Raven was handled, I thought was bad. Mm -hmm. But that said, you know, for moving in above Broadway and absorbing all of that drama and then sitting on top of a a spire in your own dimension and crying and creepily smiling or frowning while listening to your friends about to get down. Yeah. (laughs) And then standing there and creepily watching Dick sleep overnight while holding his hand, I had to give it to Raven. Yeah, she, she pulled a straight up Edward from Twilight there. I had the same choice. I also didn't feel great about it, but it would be really tough to give it to anybody else. I mean, she essentially at this point has been bitten by a radioactive theater district and (laughs) absorbed the proportional traumatic behavior. So 
yeah, I don't like it, but it would be tough to give this nod to anyone else. If there was another person, it would probably be Beast Boy in this issue, I think, just for his behavior at the restaurant, where he goes from dejected moping to elated perving at the drop of an autograph pad. Maybe, but I hate being this way. Nothing good ever. And then he is approached and immediately starts cracking jokes. Mm-hmm. But yeah, no, it's Raven. I'm sorry to say. Yep. Well, every issue of a Teen Titans comic has an Aqualad, the greatest of Teen Titans, and also a Beast Boy, the worst of Teen Titans. In this issue, who did you have as your Beast Boy? And who did you have as your Aqualad? For the Beast Boy category, so initially I had Raven for the way that she was written, but because I didn't like the way that she was written, I opted to go instead with Beast Boy, who I also didn't like the way he was written, (laughs) but was consistent in what I do not like about his behavior. Yeah, I had the same choice. I went with Beast Boy. I considered Raven, uh, but honestly, all things considered, she actually did a very good job in this issue. Mm -hmm. Yeah. For whatever reason, however overwrought she may have been acting about it, What she did was save a teammate's life after healing herself when she absorbed very heavy injuries during a fight. I actually had her as my Aqualad in this issue. And yeah, Beast Boy was just a fucking gross creep all issue long. Despite the fact that I gotta believe he has a subscription to Zoo Books magazine, just from the Archaeopteryx at the beginning and, uh, you know... That makes sense for that character that he would be into, like, weird animal fun facts. But uh, I like that. I wish that was made more explicit in his character. You think that would have saved him from getting the Beast Boy Award if they had explicitly showed him reading a zoo book? I think it might have, honestly. (laughs) (laughs) That's a pretty good magazine. Those pictures of the animals when they just have the musculature and no skin is so cool. Mm -hmm. Like, being a little kid, I think that was my equivalent of, like, the way you see Playboy centerfolds depicted, where it's just like, oh, I don't really read this for the articles. That was the way I was about those zoo books. I'd like flip to that page where it's just all the like animal muscles, then just them with a skeleton. Mm-hmm. I thought that was so cool. Yeah, I remember being fascinated by that as well. But yeah, Beast Boy was just a, he was a gross creep towards Starfire. He was duped by Cyborg into using non-existent vernacular. He just did a bad job. He was a real jerk in both the 80s way and the now way. Yep. Then he also did something that creeped me out, perhaps hopefully inadvertently, that we'll talk about when we get to panels. So yeah, he was my Beast Boy too. For my Aqualad, I actually went with Starfire because I thought in terms of crime fighting, you know, she was the most effective. And yeah, she thinks she killed a guy, but she really thought she was shooting a robot, which given all the evidence up to that point was a perfectly reasonable assertion. Yeah, that is an absolutely fair choice. Despite the fact that her actions led to uh, some bad PR for the Titans, she didn't do anything wrong. She, she really didn't. She was very effective in battle. Other than that, yeah, the bad PR and uh, the only other ding that, that almost edged her out of the category was the way that she, you know, and it's her choice, but the way she handled Gar being so creepy in the pool. To say, oh, you're so silly. Yeah, to kind of deflect it like she normally does, where I was like, maybe you should just starbolt him. (laughs) 
next time he does that. Yeah, I think that might not be a bad idea. I choose to believe that her response to Beast Boy, that maybe she intended it to be more infantilizing or emasculating of him. But yeah, no, I know what you mean. I think she should just, you know, uh, shoot him in the face with a space laser at this point. Yeah, I mean, the strategy makes sense the way that you describe it, but it's clearly not working. Right. So at this point, I mean, I think maybe you need to uh, kill him. (laughs) (laughs) Or just injure. Yeah, or, you know, very badly injure him. Maybe Raven can heal him afterwards, maybe not. But I think that's the right choice at this point. What was your favorite panel? I think my favorite panel, because it was just so unique compared to the rest of the art, which, by the way, is just awesome in this in this issue Mm -hmm. is the mug shots on page 28 the mug shots were really interesting i was trying to figure out if like there was some hidden code in the bza being all a part of their mug shot numbers but they they were really well done and yes very unique for the rest of the issue did you have a favorite mug shot i liked the expression on joe's face yeah because he has that look of just like I don't know if incredulity is the right word, which is like, really? (laughs) Yeah. But also sad at the same time. He's the only one besides Starfire. Starfire looks sad. Everyone else looks just kind of annoyed or angry. Mm -hmm. And Jericho's like, fucking seriously? Okay. Resigned annoyance, maybe? Yeah, that's a good way to put it. I think my favorite panel is the one where... Beast Boy gets thrown through the billboard of a suntan lotion ad. Poor babies. Yeah, of a suntan lotion ad and has his head replacing that of a baby. It cracks me up. It's a dumb joke. And I think I know what you were talking. Is this the one you were talking about? Yeah. Where then he looks behind him and says, this is embarrassing. Nice tush, though. So, I mean, yeah, on its face, he is complimenting the butt of a baby. It's really just weird, though. It is so weird. Yeah. And it's such a different tone of humor than you see in the rest of the book. Like, this is something from, like, a Warner Brothers cartoon. But it is him being embarrassed, and I like to see Beast Boy be embarrassed, and this is a novel way to have that done. Yep, I agree. Any other panels you wanted to talk about? No, not specifically, but I I do want to highlight the way that the technology is drawn i was you know kind of pleasantly reminded of perez's artwork by the level of detail that was in there with the robotics and cables and everything yeah i agree i think that is at least partly romeo tangal's doing and he was the same inker that perez had on the earlier issues but uh yeah he and Barreto work really really well together they're one of my favorite art teams that we've seen and That's saying something, because there have been some amazing artists working on this title. But I think especially after getting the palette cleanser, let's say, of the Pat Broderick art in the last issue, it makes me appreciate Eduardo Barreto all the more. Mm. Well, Corey, I have but one final question I must put to you. In the relatively arbitrarily decided month of December 1988. What was Aqualad probably up to? Corey, what poot? This month and this year, let's say that Aqualad had less uh, impact on the, the global scale than he tends to. 
really, it's it's just this is kind of more of like a a day in the life uh, kind of view into what's going on in his non heroic time. And unfortunately, he is sitting in the car waiting for Beaky to get out of the vet due to um an unfortunate drunken basketball accident where Beaky thought he could fit the whole basketball in his pelican pouch thing and dunk it and just things went sideways and it was bad oh dear they were playing a game and um yeah that happened but the car though that aqualad decided to hang out in in the car while he waits at the vet because he was so excited to get a new car which had just come out that year and that month and it was a white with a fake wood siding station wagon a plymouth reliant Ooh! So he was sitting there listening to the radio. He had picked up a Thrasher magazine, which he does just read for the articles. And he <laughs> learned about a direct-to-video horror movie called Lunch Meat about scary cannibals and decided, nope, I will not be watching that. That does not sound good. Um, mm-hmm. But he did enjoy some in-depth interviews with uh, both Guns N' Roses and uh, Social Distortion. Interesting. Which magazine did you say that was again? That was the December 88 issue of Thrasher magazine, skateboarding magazine. Okay, so it is. But yeah, they have uh, cultural bits in there where they will talk about uh, music or movies from time to time. It's interesting that you brought up horror movies because that does play into the rest of his adventures in December of 1988. See, earlier that month, Aqualad had spent some time communicating as he does with sea life and traditionally that's been a bit of a one-way street he telepathically commands fish and they do what he says but he had started listening to some requests from various fish at this point and he ended up hanging out with a school of salmon that was just bored bored out of their darn minds so he decided he was gonna have, have a little fun with them. He's like, well, what do you guys want to see? They're like, oh, we want to see a horror movie. He's like, what would be a good horror <laughs> movie for fish? I'll, I'll make one, and then I'll just project it into their mind. And uh, he ended up coming up with a title that was based on things that uh, fish would be afraid of, specifically that salmon would be afraid of. And he's like, well, what are their two biggest predators? Oh, I know. I'll make them a horror movie called Bears versus Eagles. No matter who wins, we lose. (laughs) And so he had some fun doing that, only it was too effective. It scared those fish so badly. And uh, some of the older fish came up to him, and they they had their own little fish PTA. And they're like, (laughs) Aqualad, I demand that you stop bears versus eagles from being seen anywhere. And Aqualad was like, okay, okay. But then the fish took the next step and they went to an undersea lawyer and they made it legal that Aqualad would be responsible for a huge amount of liability if anybody saw bears versus eagles. And that was a bit of a problem because on December 31st, there was a big football game coming up for the (laughs) NFC Championship that was the bears versus the eagles. And Aqualad decided, well, I better do my best. So he went to Chicago and he started splashing around in the lake and got all of the sea life to splash as much as they could. And he worked up enough steam that that stadium was surrounded by a a deep fog. 
so that people could not clearly see the Bears versus the Eagles that day. It became known as the Fog Bowl, and it was a game where there was uh, less than 15 yards of visibility for either team. And really, just most people, despite the fact that it was televised, could not see Bears versus Eagles. At last, an explanation for the Great Fog Bowl of 88. And that is what Aqualad was probably up to. Wow. Preventing an undersea lawsuit. Nice work, man. I, I wanted to use that, and I couldn't think of a way to work the fog bowl in. So, good job. Well, to be fair, neither could I. <laughs> hey, no, that's uh, fear of litigation. That was a good one. Well, Corey, thanks for talking about this comic book with me. I had a very nice time. Likewise. And we'll be back next week to talk about a Defenders comic book uh, settling into the J.M. DeMatteis run, which so far I've enjoyed, and I'm looking forward to getting another installment of it. In the meantime, if you would like to get into touch with us, you can do so at ttwasteland at gmail.com or via our post office box at Tighten Up the Defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon, 97294. You can also probably find us in some aspect or another of the socials media. If you did that this last week, you will be able to see the picture that Corey found of us in our outfits from the Siblings Dance Off, which uh, came up on last week's show. Golly, that was uh, just looking at those pictures is such a journey. Like, I mean, we're definitely older now, but also neither of us has a soul patch. So it's a trade off. <sighs> yep. Yeah, anyway, if you want to see that picture and hear random things that I think from time to time, you can find us on the socials media by uh, just, uh, yeah, hacking open your browser and uh, carving into it. Tighten up the defense in some runes and then probably some kind of a, a genie, as it were, perhaps a game genie, depending on what system you're using, will uh, pop out and grant you the wish of viewing us on, I don't know, Twitter or something. That's how social media works, right? Mm hmm Okay. If you can't find us there, there's another place you can look. That's deep inside your heart. We'll be in there, hanging out. What are we going to be doing in there, Corey? Oh, probably trying to learn how to make GNU work. Ooh, as a joker? No, as a computer thing. Oh, I forgot that was a computer thing already. I only learned that, what, half an hour ago? Something like that? And uh, yeah, technological information can find no purchase in the barren soil of my mind. Oh, don't sell yourself short. Okay, I won't. If you'd like to support the show financially, you can do so by checking us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash ttwasteland. If you do, you get access to a whole bunch of bonus material. There is the monthly podcast I co-host with my wife, Lisa, called What the Duck, a podcast most foul, but with a W because he's a duck. That's the full name of the show. That's where we talk about the Howard the Duck comics from the 70s. And there's also a whole bunch of video reviews that I do of classic comic books that are up there. And there's also just some other podcasts and audio material that we've done over the years. There's a whole bunch of stuff up there. And if you become a patron, you get exclusive access to all of it. So that's one reason you might want to consider donating. Another reason, and from my vantage point, a more important one, is it lets us know that you care about the show and that it's important to you that we be able to continue doing it. 
the donations that we get make it possible for us to keep doing the show. And uh, I really appreciate them. And I really appreciate you guys. So thank you. If you would like to support the show in a non-monetary way, well, there's ways to do that as well. What are some of those ways, Corey? I would say one of the best things that you can do is to just spread the word. Tell a friend. Tell an associate. Mm. Maybe legal counsel. Wait, no, don't do that. Tell... Yeah, no, no, we don't want the law to know about us. An enemy. Yeah. Tell anyone except legal counsel. (laughs) They should listen to the show. I mean, if you are legal counsel for somebody, we do have a number of lawyers who listen to the show. But, uh, you know, let's let's keep this off the books. Yeah, that's that's what I'm saying. I'm not uh, disparaging the profession. I'm just, you know... Yeah, there's no reason Johnny Law needs to know about what we're up to over in this neck of the internet. No, sir. So that's one thing you could do. Um, And, gosh, another effective thing to help the show is to leave a nice review. Oh, yeah. Any place where a review can be left, like whatever podcatcher you're using to listen to the show, uh, hop in there and type up, tighten up the defense. They're not jerks. By either the 80s definition, nor the current definition. Five stars. Mash those stars. Yeah. Yeah, just uh, mash them up. Uh, Lork and scribe, as they say. What? I don't know. Well, I can't think of a joke. Sometimes I just say words funny. Okay. So, until next week, what's good new with you? Uh. Yeah. Bye. Bye. <laughs> And they know it.